So if you take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3, that's where we are today. Genesis 3. Some of you are in our current focus group on world religions and cults. And uh, some of you know that that has been going on here through, through the summer. You know, every belief system in the world has to, at some point, answer the question, why is everything so messed up? Where did that come from? How did we get where we are right now? What's the answer to that? Whether you're Hindu or Muslim or Jew or Christian or Buddhist or atheist or whatever, you've got to have an answer to the question, why all the suffering? And when we come to Genesis chapter 3 today, this chapter for us answers that question, where did things go wrong? This is one of those chapters in the Bible that you just say the name of the chapter and we know what it's about. You know, we've got several of those through the, through the scriptures. You know, we've got 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, and Psalm 23 talks about God being our shepherd, and Acts chapter 2 describes the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. Sometimes when we just talk about how messed up our world is, we just say we live in a Genesis 3 world. And we all know what that means. John MacArthur put it this way. All failure, all disappointment, all weakness, all sadness, all sorrow, all pain, all pride, all disillusionment, all trouble, all discomfort, all disease, all remorse, all regret, all conflict, all hate, all jealousy, all envy, all bitterness, all vengeance, all oppression, all fear, all crime, all selfishness, all confusion, all perversion, all lies, all deception, all error, all intimidation, all manipulation, all deviation, all distortion, all that is less than perfect than God came from this one event. In a way, it's the worst chapter in the Bible. So aren't you glad you came today? Let's remember, too, that everything that happens in Genesis chapter 3, this is history. This is really the way it happened. This is not some kind of an allegory or a made-up story or a fairy tale about a woman named Eve and a man named Adam and a snake that just happens to know how to talk. This happened. Just as everything else we've looked at in Genesis so far really happened the way that God said that it happened. You're in chapter 3. Just flip back to the end of chapter 1. Just at the end of chapter 1, let's remind ourselves of where we are. Because Lowell, so far covering the beginning of this book, has um, laid the foundation well for where we're headed today. Right at the end of chapter 1, chapter 1, God's creating everything, right? The whole universe gets created in chapter 1 in six days. And in verse 31, right at the end there, it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. 
God said that. You know what that means? It was very good. Then what happens in chapter 2? The author backtracks a little bit and covers specifically day 6 in a little bit more detail. And we see a little bit more about how man was made and how animals were made. And he names the animals and is spending time with the animals, but he's lonely, right? And God sees the need to bring someone to him as a companion. And the woman is created And at the end of chapter 2, just look at the last verse of that chapter. At verse 25, the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. God saw that all he had made and it was good. And the man and woman were naked and they were not ashamed. But Genesis 3, everything changes. Let's read it together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm not going to ask what Bill just said to Gaynor. (laughs) I can guess, though. (laughs) Well, the beginning of this chapter, we see the strategy of Satan. We're introduced to this serpent in verse 1, and we know who's speaking here. We get some clues in the New Testament. You might want to just jot jot down these references Uh, that give us an idea of who it is that is speaking here through this serpent. Revelation 12.9 is a verse that says says this, gives us a big clue. And the great dragon, this is the end of everything, right? Revelation 12.9, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil 
and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear you can draw a straight line from that verse to Genesis 3.1. And we know that the one speaking is Satan himself. He's called the same thing, that ancient serpent, in Revelation 20, verse 2, when he is bound for a thousand years. So sometime between the end of chapter 1, where God said everything is good, and the end of chapter 2, where Adam and Eve were unashamed before God and naked, creation was perfect. Somewhere between that and the beginning of chapter 3, there was rebellion in heaven. And we find this in other places in the Old Testament, but we know that God's created beings, angelic beings, had the choice of following God or not. And Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels, rebelled against God and took many of the angels with him. The Bible says a third of heaven followed Lucifer and were thrown out of heaven. All of that happened sometime before the beginning of chapter 3. And then they were able to have influence on earth at that point after being thrown out of heaven. And that's what Satan is doing here at the beginning of chapter 3. What was his strategy? He led that successful rebellion against God in heaven. And now he focuses his attention on the only other created beings who had the capacity to choose to follow God or not. Human beings. He started his plan with a question. Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, God didn't say that. God didn't say you can't eat of any tree. There are plenty of trees you could eat from all through the garden. There's a lot of good fruit in the garden. But one tree, stay away from. But Satan is working a mind game here. And with Eve, he begins to twist the truth confusing God's commands just enough to get her to follow his thinking. And Eve says that, yeah, they can eat from trees in the garden except one. And if they do eat from that one, that they will die. And then Satan calls God's own character into question. That won't happen. You won't surely die. God is wrong. Here's what will really happen if you eat. You will be like him. John 8, 44, it's a pretty important verse. It says that Satan is a liar, the father of all lies. And Satan can tempt all of mankind to sin in a million different ways, but his strategy is always a one-string banjo. He's a liar. Satan will lie to you, he will lie to me, and if we buy into those lies, we will sin. He did it with Eve, he does it through our whole world today, and we see the effects of that all around us. He lies about God's word. Did God actually say? (coughs) He lies about his character. God's wrong, you won't die. He lies about God's goodness. You mean to tell me God put you in this garden 
and he restricted you? He told you there's a tree you can't eat from? Really? If he loved you, don't you think he would let you eat from any tree you wanted? Can't you see that my advice to you, that I'm the one who really cares for you more than God? He lies about God's goodness. He lies about God's authority. God is lying to you, is what he's saying. doesn't care about your happiness. You're under his thumb. He's restricted you. He's insecure and doesn't want you to make your own decisions. You know better than he does what you should be doing. You want freedom, don't you? Not and on. He lies to us, and our world is a mess because people have listened to the lies of Satan and bought into his deception and rebellion. How do we know if we're buying into Satan's lies? How can we tell? If you've got a Bible in your lap or on your phone or on your iPad this morning, you get into that book, you study it, you meditate on it, you memorize it, you read it, you discuss it with other believers, you'll know. We will be able to tell when we start to wander and start to buy those lies. The strategy of Satan is always the same. Lies. The defense against Satan is always the same. God's word. That's what Jesus used against Satan when he tried to tempt him. Just quoted scripture at him. And we should know God's word to be able to say no to those lies. Well, verse 6, we see the sin of Adam and Eve. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired, make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See in this verse what this forbidden tree looked like? It looked good. Sin looks good. Sin is fun. Sin is pleasurable. And an added bonus is we're in control. That's the appeal of sin. And what Eve and then Adam gave into. Sin felt great for them. It was pleasing to the eye to look on this fruit and to have the desire to be wise because of the lie that Satan had told them, you're not going to surely die. Enjoy yourself. John Piper wrote this, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not 
cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. And that all happened right here for the first time. In Genesis 3, it's amazing what people will exchange for sin. Have you seen people that have just lost it all? Because they wanted sin more than what is right. Adam and Eve had everything. It was perfect. I mean, imagine the best day you've ever had. Maybe what you shared with somebody today, what really energizes you and relaxes you and helps you. Tracy and I sat on our porch yesterday. Man, it was a great summer day in Shanghai. Had the iced tea, had the faithful dog at our feet. It's a pretty good day. Take your best day and then go to another planet for the enjoyment that Adam and Eve experienced, something that we will never on this earth understand. What they exchanged, the perfection, the goodness that they tasted of God. But they made the decision to exchange that perfection, chance to decide what was best for themselves against God's command. And remember why God has set it up this way. Pastor Lowell said this several weeks ago. God didn't need an earth full of robots that would just do what he said, right? He wanted loving, obedient children. And to have that, he had to give us the ability to choose, to obey him, to follow him, to show our love for him in that way. Robots can't choose. So robots can't love. We have the capacity to choose, and we show our love to God by obeying Him. And in the original creation, the creation that God said was good, that's how He designed it. So Eve, then Adam, ate the fruit, says their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And the next thing they did was cover themselves with fig leaves. Why? They were ashamed. Can you imagine experiencing shame for the first time after being sinless? For a time, we don't know how much time elapsed between the creation of man and Genesis 3 when all of this happened. But there was time that passed and there was deep connection and fellowship with God that these people understood and experienced beyond anything we can imagine. And now all of a sudden, a brand new feeling, brand new emotion. They didn't know what to do with it. It was shame. They knew they were naked. They knew something they shouldn't know. And they had to cover it up because they were ashamed. You ever felt shame? It's a natural emotion when we know we've done something wrong, right? There's just this knee-jerk reaction. We know we've done something wrong. Back when I was in junior high and high school, I had a paper route. And these were the days where if you had a paper route, 
you had to go back to every house individually and knock on the door to get your money, okay? Nobody prepaid. Nobody sent it directly to the paper. You had to get back out there, find people when they were home, okay? Not an easy thing. And get money from them, and, and uh, that was how you got paid. If you didn't go out and collect, you didn't get your money. And my younger brother, four years younger than me, he did this paper out with me, so we would go collect together. And, um, and I remember one day we were just goofing off because, you know, we were boys. And while we were collecting, we, had, we were playing some kind of a game where we, the first guy to get to the next house you know, that, that needed to be collected from. And I remember we were running to the, to the house. It was, it was the Felties' house. I remember the Felties. And uh, I got to the porch before Wes did. And, and I mean, we were, we, were, we were bringing it. I mean, we were really, because this was, this was a big deal to get to the next house first before your brother. And the problem with the Felties' Uh, porch is that it wasn't very big, okay, and uh, we had pretty good momentum going into that porch, and I can just remember not being able to stop, and I remember my knee going into the storm door of the Felties and busting out the glass on the bottom part of that door, okay, I remember the crunch I remember the giggle from my brother behind me. And I also remember, this is vivid, I remember right after my knee hit that door and I looked down and it was broken, my body in one motion, I can't do it now, but in one motion, my arms went like this and I completely turned around 180 degrees and I was ready to bolt. And I maybe even took a step or two. There's immediate shame. Immediately knew what I'd done wrong. And immediately didn't want to face it. Immediately wanted to hide. That's just where our hearts are when we do something wrong. We don't want to own up. We don't want to face it. It hurts too much. And we know that there's accountability and there was for me, having to pay for the Felty's door. But we all know what that feels like. It's natural. Can you imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve? I mean, up until now, had never felt this. And now all of a sudden, they're sewing fig leaves together because they are so ashamed. Let me encourage you while we're while we're talking about shame for a minute, I just encourage you, even though shame doesn't feel very good, we'd rather not experience it. Don't lose it. Don't lose your shame. Sin's a reality in our lives now. It's part of our world. It's part of who we are. We fight that flesh all the time. Even if you know Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in you, we still have those tendencies, right? Your shame is your God-given consciousness 
to respond to a holy God that's been offended and to come to Him and ask for forgiveness. And the amazing thing about our world to me is not the amount of sin that's out there. Because Satan's still lying and people are still buying into it. It shouldn't surprise us the level, the depths of sin that our world has gotten into. But I tell you what does surprise me is the absolute, complete lack of shame. Not even caring. Just the fact that people can so blatantly curse God in their lives and shake their fists in His face and not feel shame. And once shame is lost, it's easier and easier to justify our sin and to walk further and further away. We're seeing that in America right now. But as for you and for me, we should embrace that shame because we are sinners. And that's the way we keep coming back to God. Well, let's keep moving on. Verse 8. It's the shifting of the blame now that we see from Adam and Eve after they sin. God comes looking for Adam and Eve. He obviously knows where they are, but it's interesting that their natural response is a shame and they're hiding from God. And God finds them and questions them. And even though he obviously knows what has happened, he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam gives this answer, verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman had somebody to blame too. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I don't know if you have something you can think of in your past, a movie or something that you've watched that, that really impacted you spiritually. I mean, you can remember the way you felt watching some kind of a, a show. I, I can remember Tracy and Megan and I, went to see, uh, how many of you have been to Sight and Sound up in Lancaster? Okay, so of you know what that's, what that's like. They did uh, a show several years ago, Megan was little, this was probably maybe 10 years ago, uh, called In the Beginning, and that was the, that was the production, was, um, was showing, uh, if you can imagine, I mean, Sight and Sound does it up nice. I mean, they really do, you know, pretty amazing things on the stage. And they did Creation Man right there, in the, right there in the theater. It was pretty cool. Seeing the stars and the planets flying around, you know, up above you. And, and before you get done, you know what it's like. That stage is, you know, three sides of that theater. So you're, you're just surrounded at the end of Creation Week by the Garden of Eden. It was amazing to look at the creativity of those, of those uh, people at Sight and Sound to... to to create what that might have been like. And everywhere you looked, there was just something really cool to look at. But it was, it was bright and it was vivid and there were colors everywhere and these trees and flowers and animals and, and just stuff. Everywhere you looked, it was just amazing. 
And then man was created. And there was a, a figure there, a, like a pre-incarnate Christ-type figure who was in a robe, who was with Adam, and they were walking through the garden, and there was a really funny song that Adam sings as he's naming all the animals. And it was just really, I mean, Adam was having fun with God, which is the way it was. They enjoyed each other, they had that fellowship. And then when Eve was brought along, it was just it was amazing to just try to, try to identify with what that must have been like. Perfection. And they went all out on stage to try to depict that. And then came the serpent, and the whole story that we've been reading here at the beginning of Genesis 3. And then the first sin. And I can remember the feeling, the overwhelming feeling of contrast. From the fun and the playfulness and the perfection and having everything provided that Adam and Eve was experiencing, tasting God's goodness on a level just unsurpassed by anybody else ever in the history of the world. Incredible. And then after the sin, the colors literally started to fade on the stage. There weren't vivid colors anymore. It wasn't as bright. The light started to dim a little bit. And Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. And the contrast that I remember the most is not visually what was going on with the garden and the way the world was after sin and after God cursed the world. The biggest contrast was in the people. It was in Adam. And it was in Eve and the way they treated each other. You started to see attitudes that were just ugly. Turning on each other. The blame. The stuff that it wasn't even there before. It's almost like for a while you could forget that sin even existed. You were just so caught up in this perfect world. And all of a sudden it was gone. And they were banished. And that's when intermission came for the play. And people got up and went to the restroom and went out to the lobby and stretched. And I could not get out of my chair. I just remember this so clearly. I couldn't. I sat there for the next 15 minutes and I could not. It was an overwhelming, oppressive feeling of maybe for the first time really thinking about what happened in Genesis 3 and the effects of that and how that turned the heart of man to do things he never did before. And part of that is blaming. Part of that is owning up. And that's something all of us still deal with. Our sin is our sin. Our shame is our shame. 
And that's why we need to embrace that so we can come back to God. There's so much here. Let's just keep moving on. Before we end, I just I feel like we need to just skip down and take a look at one more verse. And this is a verse that, that uh, Pastor Law I know will pick up with next week. But if we end right now with Adam and Eve's blaming each other, that's a downer. I don't want us to end there, okay? Because that's not the end of the story. Let's take a look at verse 15 real quick. This is God talking to the servant, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on here in this verse? He is Christ. We're seeing Christ, the Messiah and the plan of redemption from the very second that the sin happened. God turns to the serpent and makes this curse. Satan, Christ will bruise your head. There will be an ultimate final blow. You take a blow to the head and it's over. All you're going to be able to do is bruise his heel. There'll be some temporary suffering that you'll be able to unleash. But it's not going to finish him. And the promise of a redeemer takes the sting and despair and hopelessness out of the sin that entered the world here in this chapter. We turn to Romans 5 real quick, and then we'll finish up this morning. Romans 5. You know, we could read this account that we looked at this morning as a historical account and talk about the sin of Adam and Eve. But we're really confronted with our own sin in this passage. What happened here at the beginning affects all of us today and answers that question we started with. What is so wrong with everything? Where did we go wrong? This chapter tells us why some people hate other people of other races. This chapter tells us why entire nations can justify all kinds of sexual perversion and that the life created by some of that perversion can so easily be justified by snuffing out millions of babies' lives. Explains how cultures can shake their fists in God's face when they redefine God's original and best design for the home and the family. It's happening right now. And then punish those who agree with God. That's happening now too. All started here in Genesis 3. Adam lost it all in Genesis 3. But the good news is, Romans 5, there's another Adam. A second Adam who undid what the first Adam messed up. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
So death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 19, for as by the one, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. First Adam messed up, and the second Adam will take care of that. One man obeyed so that sinners could be acceptable to God again, have a relationship with Him again, just as they were created to have. And think about this. Revelation 13, 8 says this about Jesus. Calls Him the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before creation ever happened, before Genesis chapter 1, before man was on the earth, before the first sin, there was already a plan in action, ready to go, because God knew we would rebel. It says that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. A sacrifice was already prepared for our sin. There's a lot of bad news in Genesis 3. But there's also good news right there in verse 15. The best news. That even from the beginning when man committed the first sin and was separated from God, God already had a plan to bring us back. We'll be looking at that in the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage and our hearts are, um, are sad because of what we see here, people turning from you, people turning from your love, from your perfection. And now the world that we live in, all creation is groaning for that time that we will be restored back to you in that same perfection. We know that will happen someday, but the world we live in right now, that's not happening. And it is so hard to live in these bodies and to have these tendencies and these hearts that are drawn away from you. Father, I pray that we will be quick to understand the lies of our enemy and resist him. to have hearts that more and more are following you, understanding your commands and how the boundaries that you set are for our best, that we'll follow that. And the shame that we do have for our sin, Lord, that we will feel that deeply, that we will hate our sin and its ugliness and come back to you. And we thank you that forgiveness is available. Through the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, your son Jesus, his name we pray, amen.